Turbo Alpert and Tumor Nebraska, Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and what follows, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball uh, in what follows. He does just that, and uh, I ask, this is this is what, it, what we have here is basically a question and answer situation, right? I ask questions, and Dave Cameron answers them. So, for example, a question I ask in the program to follow, I say, uh, I say, Cameron, Ron Renneke, Brewers manager Ron Renneke, was dismissed by the team. Uh, what what can we expect from for his future, for Ron Renneke's future? What do fired managers, what do they go on to do? I, I, ask in that, I ask another question like this. I say, Cameron, recently added to the site has been uh, quality of contact classifications for pitchers and hitters. I think for hitters. Definitely for pitchers. I, uh, soft contact, medium contact, hard contact. I say, what do those mean? What what might they signify? That's a, that's the second question I ask. A third question I ask is, uh, with regard to the Chicago White Sox, what might be looming for them? I ask questions about what might be looming for them because their record is not particularly great. Those, those there, those are examples of three questions I ask Dave Cameron. Uh, also in what follows, Dave Cameron himself, uh, because he's not only answering things, he's also, he, uh, he has the right to ask questions and he asks, a question that might uh, that might have some interest to listeners of Fangraphs Audio. How did how was a woman ever attracted to you in the first place? So that's a question that Dave Cameron asked me, and uh, but uh, that's all that to follow. What is, what is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. Dave Cameron. Yes, that is my official title. And this is uh, on your one childless day, is that right? Uh, well, not entirely childless. Childless work day, mm-hmm. time period. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Any um, anything to share from you? You've you've now you you have some data with which to work on working while also fathering. Uh, I don't know if it's a – I don't know what, how large the sample size must be for it to become reliable, but I'm wondering if you've made any observations, even a, just anecdotal ones perhaps. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think working working from home while attempting to watch a child is uh, a difficult proposition. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I will say to any single parents out there, you're amazing. Like I really have absolutely no idea – like, I mean, my wife and I are overwhelmed and exhausted all the time. And if you took one of us out of the picture, I think the other one would just quit. <laughs> you just, can't. That's the just, thing, though. You can't quit. Right. I guess if there's just one of you, you can't. And you so really can't. Yeah. I mean, even with two of us, we feel like we're at our wits end. So single parents out there, you uh, deserve all kinds of medals. And I will say this. I will say, you talk about single parents. I asked my dad one time, I said, uh, is there a difference between like having no, like what, what's the difference between no children, one child, two children? And I don't remember the entire, his entire response, but he did say something like, he says, if you have, if you have one child and then you have another child, you might as well have like 10 other children. It's all, cause like once you have two, then it's either at best you as parents have equal footing 
Right. But so all never... my friends who have multiple children say the line is actually three. Like oh, when you have go. two, you are you can each of you can take one yeah. and you can discipline or do whatever you need to do. But once you're outnumbered, then you're outnumbered <laughs> permanently. Like yeah. you will never not be outnumbered. It's three or twelve or twenty, it doesn't matter. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, at some point there probably is even like a slope where if you have a whole bunch, now all of a sudden you have an extra one to take care of all the rest of them, and you can kind of make them a pseudo adult. Right. You get one back. Like you get a. It's almost like in checkers, right, where you like uh, bounce down to the end. You get another, whatever they're called, king. King, uh, king, uh, king me. Mixed. King me. Yeah, king me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you get another one of those. Eventually, like one of the responsibilities turns into an asset. Uh, eventually, if you. Have yeah. A, well, that's the farming. Uh, the family, yeah, right. Exactly. The farming yeah. mentality, right? Yeah. 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 Um. Well, all right, good. Uh, and then one other semi-serious note: um, you you have mentioned before on the podcast that you you have family from Baltimore. I don't know if you still have anyone living there. I have uh, an aunt uh, and some cousins, and yeah, I have some extended family still in the area. So, question: and, uh, I most know. of my most of my mom's family, which consists of thirteen siblings, right. uh, were raised there. Right. And uh, I guess my question was: Is everyone uh, safe generally? Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, uh, no one's been arrested or. Uh, brut- brutalized by the police right. recently. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think the, uh, the city is, has, has some issues and these have been yeah. long, long standing issues and, um, not that I can recommend anyone go watch it immediately because it's not on Netflix or anything, but my cousin's documentary about kind of race relations in Baltimore taking on some more, <laughs> uh, significance at the moment. Right, 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 right. Yeah, these things, uh, they do boil up. Um, and you hope there's a way to do it, uh, I don't know about responsibly is the word, but, uh, you want people, you want to, hey, let everyone, you want everyone treated fairly? I think everyone, everyone wants that in theory. There's like a filling in the details, I suppose, is the difficult part. Yeah. I think, uh, I will, I will note that, so when I wrote the post last week about the, uh, strange no fan game, mm-hmm. I did not know how to conclude it because I, Okay, you know, I wrote like I want everyone to be safe, and then I was like, well, maybe that's not what's best. Maybe we need some non-safety for the best. I don't know what the best. I don't know what I'm rooting for. So I, I just like ended awkwardly because you felt like no matter what you said, someone was going to be like, that's not what we need. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, not surprising that you ended it awkwardly. Yeah. Well. (laughs) Secondly, though. Yeah. Secondly, right. And actually, I will say, and uh, this is not uh, not to criticize anyone publicly. um, That regard that. I recognized that the game, the broadcast, was going to be interesting because of the empty stadium. But I was real—I I personally was finding it hard to uh, extract any pleasure from that because of the circumstances that surrounded it. I guess it, it uh, made it difficult. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly like a unique experience. Yeah. But I think watching it, you were aware of the fact that it was unique because of a tragedy, which yeah. you know. Not necessarily something you want to derive pleasure from. Right. Now, I will say that if anyone is so inclined, and they probably won't be, but uh, this actually happens relatively frequently in some of the soccer-playing nations. Like, like in if Italian team's fans or ultras or uh, tifosi, they're sometimes called, uh, if they misbehave, oh, like especially maybe in an away game in particular, or maybe it doesn't matter, then the league will penalize them by having to play – X number of games, uh, or the X number of their their home games, without anyone in the stadium, um, and so there have been. I have seen a couple of Italian league uh, football matches that are played just with zero people there. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, this is actually not, like, that unusual for, like, minor league baseball, too. I mean, I've gone to some, like, day games in, like, you know, the Carolina League, where if you go to, like, a Wednesday afternoon game at 12 o'clock right. during the school year, and it's not, you know, field trip day or something, you know, it's you and a handful of scouts. Let me ask you a question about employment, not my employment. <laughs> okay. Um, because let's not go that, there. That's, a, that's an after this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to talk about Ron Renicky's employment. Yeah, which he's uh, not doesn't have anymore. He doesn't have anymore, right? And yeah. uh, I was actually thinking of looking at this for post, maybe. But um, here's a, here's a here's a, a question, a simple question I, uh, that I assume has been answered by uh, some sort of research at some point. What is the effect? So the Brewers, the Brewers fired Ron Renicky. Yes. The Brewers fired Ron Renicky, probably in the most basic sense, because they are they're performing poorly. Yes. One has to assume or one would like to assume that the Brewers fired him because they feel as though somehow they're underperforming expectations and at some level is Ron Renneke's fault. Yeah, I mean, I think they are underperforming expectations and that no one thought they were the worst team in baseball. But they're also not a good team. So you basically have like a mediocre to bad team that had a worse than expected month. Uh, couldn't you blame Ron Renneke for that? Maybe. I mean, I don't know that Ron Renneke is a genius who's you know, causing his team to overperform, and maybe he does some things incorrectly. But, I mean, what was Ron Renneke going to do, like tell Ryan Braun to hit the ball better? Or, you know, like, hey, Aramis Ramirez, don't be old? I mean, you know, like I just – I think that uh, he was essentially the fall guy, which is what managers are, and he's taking some of the blame for the fact that – or all of the blame at this point – for the fact that their season has gone down the toilets. But I don't think there's anything that he could have done to stop this. Right, well, because cause it should be noted, right, he like, he had some really good seasons with the Brewers, too. They made the playoffs with him. That's good. Are you, are you like, checking out at a 1950s cashier? <laughs> no, I, there's a lot of wind. One second. <laughs> okay. It sounded like someone was going to give you, like, a nickel in exchange for your movie ticket. Uh, no, it was very windy in here for a second. All right, it's all, okay. it's all taken care of. So, so they were good with – they were also good with Ron Renneke. Yeah, right. Teams can be good or bad with the same manager, which kind of tells you how much managers matter, at least most of them. Right. Now, are there, what are, what are the results? Now I, cause in, 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 this is, this is a, um, someone was telling me, uh, reporting. In the English Premier League, um, the average tenure for a manager or coach or whatever is 17 months, right? And they play fewer matches in, obviously, in, in, uh, English soccer. So, what you're seeing there, what, you, what, what I'm guessing probably happens, what I think probably happens, what I've observed probably happening, is you have a team that's probably not a, you know, who, who knows what they're expected to do, but they don't play well for a little while, and then they get fired, and maybe they're even underperforming their peripherals. They get fired, the manager does, and then you install a new manager, and, the team is playing better, but it's probably just because uh, we have these arbitrary cutoff points, and now the team is just playing, uh, you know, on par with their peripherals as opposed to below them. Yeah, this is like the classic example of selection bias, right? Like the only time you ever have a manager get fired is when the team is underperforming, uh, unless you know, like uh, there's some 
personality conflict or something, but 95% of the time, the manager gets fired because the team is doing worse than you'd expect. So if at any point you drew the line and just said, here, all the teams were underperforming, and you took out the fired manager or not fired manager variable, and then you looked at all those teams after that point, uh, I am fairly certain, I've read studies about this, that... Uh, the teams that fired their manager don't improve any more than the teams that didn't fire their manager. You just have improvement across the board because those teams were doing worse than you'd expect based on their talent level. And whether they fire their manager or not, they're going to play better. Is it possible? Now, sometimes, Dave Cameron, this might this might surprise you. Sometimes uh, coworkers, colleagues, can uh, merely by merely by spending time together can begin to wear on each other. Uh, that is absolutely true. Yeah. <laughs> is it is it possible that uh, is it possible that maybe at least a small part of the reason is just Doug Melvin and Ron Renicky is God is just just tired tired of seeing you around, buddy. Uh, possible they did just give him a contract extension like a month or two ago. So oh, that's not good. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, like right at the beginning of the year, they they extended his contract because he was going into his lame duck season, and generally managers they don't want managers managing in their walk year, so they'll right. just give you an extra year. It's essentially severance. Like you don't actually have any extra job security; you just get a little more money when we fire you. Mm-hmm. Uh, is essentially what these extend. But they did just give him one, and I would assume that if like. Tensions were high, and they were already thinking about letting him go. Right, they probably wouldn't have done. They that. wouldn't have done that, yeah. huh? All right, so yes, they probably that probably is not the case. There have been now what, uh, when Bo Porter was dismissed from Houston, did wasn't that because it, it, no one was ever expecting Bo Porter's his first couple of years at Houston to be a great success anyway. Right, so that was an indication, or at least from public reports, that was a scenario where. Um, there was friction, and Jeff Lunau and, and Bo Porter were not getting along and not seeing eye-to-eye on things that the organization wanted to do, and so uh, Bo Porter lost that power struggle. Okay, right. Yeah, you, well, yeah, the, well, isn't it, isn't it roughly, doesn't on average like a GM get essentially two managers to figure things out, and then the onus falls on him? Yeah, generally. I think they'll, they'll let you say, I did bad at picking this guy, who could have seen that coming, and then you say, you know, I did bad again, but this time I'm really going to get it right. And if you go to your owners a third time, be like, I picked another crappy manager. Like, maybe we shouldn't let you pick anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, why does? Uh, how did Matt Williams become the manager of the Nationals, uh, replacing Davey Johnson? That is actually a pretty good question. I think uh, uh, Mike Rizzo was familiar with him from his time in Arizona. Uh-huh. Um, that's probably how. <laughs> I don't think that it was like a a particularly great selection, and I think uh, Matt Williams probably does more harm than good for the Nationals. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that was probably a familiarity pick more than a, a fantastic process leading to a, a solid selection. But it was David Johnson, David Johnson, he didn't quit, right? He essentially retired as a manager. He, he was like 90, and he said, like, I'm going to go home. <laughs> I'm going to go home. <laughs> I'm going to go home. Like a... Uh, like a uh, meteorologist in Los Angeles. Just uh, what am I doing here? Yeah, <laughs> I would just I just want to be warm and I don't want to fly anymore. I mean, you know, if I was Davy Johnson's age, the idea of like flying around the country and changing time zones this sounds awful. Yeah, especially like ugh, like in like in early April when you're doing that. Uh, yeah, just there on like a hard bench when it's cold and like I mean, you know, every good day is good. But at some point, like you have a lot of money. You don't have a lot of years left. Like your your time is declining fairly quickly, and you're spending a bunch of time with guys who are you know 
50 years younger than you. Yeah. And pro- you probably think they're all punks because I think at some point we all think that people 50 years younger than us are punks. Yeah. Like the, the, the people who are going to be born in 20 years, I already hate them. <laughs> uh, Preemptive and, hatred for the younger yeah, right. generation. I, think, I think they're awful and they're, they're ruining things. Uh, With all their energy and smooth skin <laughs> yeah, right. and uh, yeah. <laughs> all this technology I don't want to use. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think David Johnson probably just looked around and like, what am I doing? I'm going to go eat. Yeah, right. It's sleep. actually funny you mentioned, I was, I was watching the uh, Mets game yesterday or the day before, and uh, Keith Hernandez, someone was asking, I think Gary Cohen, you know, uh, who's the play-by-play guy, he said to Keith, he said, oh, did you watch the game last night? And uh, Keith Hernandez was like, no, I went to, because yeah. uh, it was his day off, he said, I went to dinner in, in Nantuck. <laughs> he went to dinner Mon- at a restaurant. Montauk, maybe. Nantuck. M- Montauk. Montauk. With an M, yeah. Yeah, you went to dinner at a restaurant called Harvest in Montauk. You're right. And I looked it up, and yeah, that's a restaurant in Montauk. Yeah. He just told him what he did last. He's not. I didn't watch the game. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a, at some point, like, you know, this will, might, like, uh, fuel people's criticism of, like, stat nerds who don't enjoy baseball. But, you know, like, when the weekend rolls around and I have some free time, I generally am looking for other things to do besides watch baseball. Because when baseball is your job, it is hard for baseball to also be your hobby. I will say... um Sadly, uh, th- well, this is a sad image. I didn't watch an, I, in addition to watching that Mets game, I also watched the ESPN replay of a broadcast from Saturday of the University of Pennsylvania versus Columbia. Not, not a playoff game, but a play-in game for the Ivy League championship game. How are you married? <laughs> I watched that. Well, my wife has so much work, she doesn't care what I do. Yeah. I know, but how did how was a woman ever attracted to you in the first place? Uh, I got her when I mean, not uh, just physically, but like you know, hey, honey, when you're studying, this is what I'm gonna do. Yeah, I, sign me up. Sign, I don't know. I got her. I think at a point when uh, you know it's difficult being a woman, and I think that my wife's self esteem was particularly low at the time when we met, uh, and um, well. and I I think I have merited from that. That that particular investment. I so are you are you rooting against it ever recovering? It's a tough situation. In which are you I like invested myself. in her depression? Yeah, it's uh it's a little bit dependent on her not liking herself. <laughs> yeah, that's because that <laughs> she deserves awesome. better. She deserves better. Clearly. Yeah, um, like on the campus in which we live today, there was positive. Um, they were doing some exercises about having a positive body image because it's difficult being a young person sometimes, and. Uh, some, I ran into some of the kids doing some stuff with us, and they're like, oh, so still, like, do you, I'm like, no, I have a gross body. I have a weird <laughs> body that's upsetting to people to see. No. Yeah, I think that's why you're a blogger who stays inside. Yeah, that's right, true. And that only compounds the problem because I'm just sitting all day and I'm shaped like an S. Anyway, what, what happens to managers, if you were to guess, and maybe, cause I was thinking about doing a brief study on this, what happens to managers after they're fired? They go on ESPN. Okay, not all of them. Well, a lot of them. Is that true? I think, I, I think that that's kind of like the next stop, right? If you're a fired manager and you want to kind of stay in baseball, uh, especially if you're fired in season when you have basically no chance of getting another managerial gig, even in the minor leagues, you go do TV. So um, like Eric Wedge and Terry Francona and a lot of these guys have moved mm-hmm. immediately from being removed of their positions to being analysts on television. And I think it's uh, wouldn't be that shocking if Ron Renneke – uh, wanted to do the same thing. Is it? I feel like there have been cases, right, where a guy takes another position within the organization. 
Didn't that happen recently with the Diamondbacks, maybe, or some other team? Uh, so that happens more with executives than it does with managers. I, I think the Twins tried to do that with Ron Gardenhire because they liked the guy, and they were like, you know, we're going to fire his manager, but we'd like you to be like an advanced scout or something, and he mm-hmm. told them to go pound sand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a pretty significant demotion. Uh, and I think for a lot of these guys, especially if they have guaranteed contracts, if your option is like stay at home and get paid or go on the road and get paid, they're going to stay at home and get paid. If you were to guess, once a manager is fired, what are the odds that he will major or that he will uh, coach a major league team again? Manage manage a major league team again? Maybe fifty fifty. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like the you know experience is often, at least has been up until recently, one of the major factors in getting an interview. Is you know teams like to interview guys who've been managers before, and there's been a trend away from that recently with Robin Ventura and Craig Council, who just took. Uh, Ron Renneke's job has never managed any baseball team, minor league, minor league, anything. He's uh, essentially just being uh, thrown into the Legion? Legion ball? Maybe. I mean, maybe, but we don't know. Uh, <laughs> as far as I know, Craig Council has never managed to manage a team, um, but he's being given a chance because they like his personality and obviously think he's intelligent, and maybe he'll be really good, but we don't know. Um, so I think there's a trend away from experience. Maybe the odds are decreasing now that Ron Renneke will get another chance. But at least in the past, it used to be, once you had, like, the manager card, you were kind of like a closer, right? Like, you're, you've are a proven closer, you're a proven manager, you're always mm-hmm. going to get another chance. Yeah, which is weird, because it just it just creates a fraternity, right, until people die, and then a new guy is allowed in. It's a sort of fraternity in which people have to die for another person to let be let in. Kind of like umpires. Oh, is that what it's like? Is it hard oh, yeah. to get fired as an umpire? You have to, like, really uh, do something atrocious to get to get removed from the umpire rotation. How long How long do you have to ump, like, in lower levels in, before A you're... very long time, like okay. 20 or 25 years. So I think this is one of the problems in talking with some people about why there's, you know, not that umpires do a bad job, but why, they're, why they aren't better, uh, why they're not, you know, slightly less antagonistic and guys like John, Joe West and uh, C.B. Buckner and some of these guys don't go away, is you say, like, well, you, the minor leagues are this breeding ground of the next generation of umpires, and they pay nothing or very little, and you have to spend decades hoping that a position opens up. And you're, you're I mean, the odds of being a major league umpire are like worse than the odds of being a major league player. Uh, and you have to spend in, you know, from your 20s through your 40s or 50s in order to uh, even qu- be qualified to be given a chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you may not get the job. So you have like a 20 or 30 year uh, kind of internship in which is low paying and probably not that much fun. Uh, in order to try and get one of the, whatever there are, like, a couple hundred, uh, 150 Major League Umpire gigs, it's, it's not great. So do you think, do you think that's what makes them surly along the way, or they have to be like that to begin with in order just to, to make it that far? I would imagine there's probably some surliness that comes along with spending a decade in minor league baseball being heckled by Thirsty Thursday fans who have you know, loaded up on one dollar beers. Uh, at some point, you probably just you know become bitter. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are. Listen, believe me, there are a lot of ways to become bitter in life. This seems like a particularly effective way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're looking for it. Yeah. If you yeah. want to become bitter, maybe try minor league umpire. Try minor league umpire. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I guess that's tough. Uh, so we, so we don't know what Ron Renneke is doing, Amelia. You would not be shocked to find him on some manner of, uh, television broadcast. Probably not Brewers related. Yeah, probably not. Okay. But eventually, though, it seems like it's so, like if there's a certain number of years that go by, you'd be like, oh, you're back in the fold. 
Maybe. Maybe. I mean, yeah. I mean, it depends on how. I think like for a beloved manager like Bobby Cox on Atlanta TV would be more likely. Like you know, one of these kind of guys, I think you would see pop up more than you know. Oh, we managed this guy for you know he managed our team for five years and we fired him. Like that's right. probably not a strong emotional connection for the fans. Right, and it probably matters how like the terms on which he left. Like because because Bobby Cox was like, yeah, I did. Right. I was a manager for what over twenty years and I retired. Yeah, and he went in the Hall of Fame. And, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, right. I don't think uh, like Ron Washington will probably go back on Rangers TV because that that marriage didn't end very well. Okay. Um. Um. Let's see. Who else, uh, what else we have? Oh, okay. We have a thing. Uh, we have a thing at the site. A big announcement. Uh. uh quality of contact. Well, we haven't actually announced it as of this recording, but people have noticed that it's on the leaderboards. So it okay, was kind well, of a soft launch that people have discovered. Let's let's talk about it. And you use yeah. the word soft right there. That's one of the sorts of contact that's available. Um, on the one hand, <clears throat> things uh, things about it seem to make sense. So, for example, uh, Mike Exisa, who uh, writer emeritus for Fangraphs.com, currently at CBSSports.com's Eye on Baseball, also uh, maybe still at, maybe not still at the uh, the, the Yankees blog there. River Ave Blues. River Ave Blues, right. Uh, but he noticed, Mike Exista noticed that, uh, you know, among pitchers who had thrown, I think, you know, it was a lowish threshold. It was like 200 innings since whatever, the beginning of whenever. Um, uh, Mariano Rivera had the highest rate of soft contact against him. Yeah, and, and for people who are who are wondering what the, what we're talking about, this is uh, baseball info solutions, batted ball classifications. This is not stat cast data. This isn't like using the new tracking technology and using exit velocity or launch angle. This is um, the, you know, the data provider we've had for a long time who provides all of our uh, kind of batted ball data where we get ground ball percentage and all this stuff. For years, they've been classifying pitches, uh, balls in play as hard hit, soft hit, medium hit, uh, and then also using um, like uh, kind of vectors in order to say like where it went. So we're, we've had this data, uh, in the database for a while, uh, but have not been able to use it, and, and now we are able to display it publicly. Uh, so, you know, the, I think Mark Simon at ESPN has been, uh, you know, tweeting out these kinds of uh, pieces of information over the last couple of years, but now you can actually find it on the Fangraphs leaderboards and soon on the player pages, uh, and, and I think we will make use of this kind of information going forward, uh, even as we have stat cast and, and maybe more technically um, robust uh, categorizations rather than saying hard, medium, soft. And what, even with StatCast, we're going to want to have context, right? And so we have this quality of contact metric going back to 2002 where StatCast is really just going to start 2014 going forward. And I think it'll be useful to look at, you know, maybe the correlations between a StatCast, you know, exit velocity and how it's categorized and kind of understand and maybe we can make some educated statements about some of this past data using StatCast data going forward. Okay. So that, so that's yeah that's the that's a brief uh, introduction. Summary. That's what it is for people who are like, what is this data that I see on the site now? Right now, I, I would have thought, and again, you see Mario Rivera at the top of the uh, weak contact list, soft contact yep. list. You say, well, that makes sense. Yep. That's uh, I mean, in addition to striking people out, Nawak, and he was also very good at. Uh, I mean, he, I think he, you know, he was especially with left-handed batters, he broke all their bats. Uh, uh frequently, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then I was looking at some correlations. I, uh, I took that same 200 innings threshold and ran a, uh, you know, just one of my multivariate regressions that I like from <laughs> Dave Cameron. And it's actually, it's not a very strong relationship, it turns out, between BABIP, for example, and the and the three types of quality of contact. 
Um, I mean, would you have expected? I thought I would have expected there to have been a stronger one, but maybe I shouldn't be shocked that it's not. What do you think about it? Yeah, so I think that one of the things that um, maybe people overestimate is that BABIP is simply uh, a stand-in for quality of contact allowed, and it's really not. I mean, I think BABIP as a whole is a, is a lot of things, and quality of contact is one of those things. Uh, but it, primarily, I would say, or not necessarily primarily, but one of the major factors is what type of pitcher you are, right? So fly ball pitchers, especially guys who generate a ton of infield flies, like Chris Young is like the classic example of this, um, the most extreme fly ball pitcher we've ever seen, essentially, um, is always going to run a lower batting average on balls in play because he gives up so few balls on the ground. And balls on the ground have a much higher variance in terms of whether they're going to go for hits or not. Uh, than balls in the air. Balls in the air generally either outs or home runs, uh, mm-hmm. with you know some extra base hits, but m- a much lower rate than on ground balls. And so if you're an extreme fly ball pitcher, uh, you're going to give up fewer hits on balls in play just because of your pitcher type, uh, and you're also going to give up more home runs, which are not counted against you on batting average and balls in play. So the cost of being an extreme fly ball pitcher is not included in the BABIP factor, uh, but the benefit is. And so this is. Uh, one of the ways that you can drive down your bat is just be a, a, an extreme fly ball pitcher. Um, and so, you know, whether you're giving up hard contact, soft contact, medium contact, if you're a fly ball guy, you're probably going to post a lower bat than if uh, you throw a knuckleball, same kind of thing. And so um, there are these ways that you can uh, kind of sustainably uh, induce a lower BABIP that aren't necessarily just giving up getting weak contact, which I think people draw a line and say low BABIP equals weak contact, that's not necessarily true. It's it can be true. It's one of the ways to do it, but that's not that Babip does not uh kind of define this pitcher had a low Babip, therefore he must have gotten weak contact. Okay. So what will be for you, what is the significance of this kind of data and, and what will be the way you're you're most excited to use it? Yeah, so I think that's one of the things that'll be interesting to look at is you know if we, because we also have pole center and opposite field percentages, uh, which are, to me, almost as exciting, uh, especially for hitters. If you look at a guy like Mark Teixeira, we know this is a guy who's running very low BABIPs over the last couple of years and is also an extreme pole hitter. And so one of the things we've uh, theorized, and probably correctly so, is that extreme pole hitters who are very easy to shift against are going to run low BABIPs because of the shift and the kind of the prevalence of defensive positioning over the last couple of years. Uh, so I think in looking at kind of not just the hard, medium, soft, but also the pole center opposite field, can we identify the types of hitters uh, who are basically unshiftable and also uh, hit the ball hard and kind of not necessarily just come up with an expected Babbitt, but uh, say, you know, like a guy like Joey Votto or Miguel Cabrera, one of these guys who's run a 350 Babbitt over their entire career over, you know, whatever, seven, 8,000 plate appearances, uh, is it just about hitting the ball hard or is it also about where they hit the ball and what can we say about Maybe some of these minor league guys who you hear, you know, this guy hits the ball to all fields, uses the, you know, kind of the whole field well, but we're questioning how much pull power he has. And a lot of times I think these guys get somewhat underrated as if they don't have a ton of home run power, but they spray the ball all over the field. Uh, people question, you know, oh, this guy's not going to hit for power in the big leagues. I think Devin Travis is a pretty good example of this right now. Yeah. Uh, Devin Travis, I think if you look, uh, maybe the highest, I, I think when I looked this morning, had the highest opposite field uh, rating or the percentage of balls hit to the field went to the opposite field, the highest for Devin Travis of anyone in baseball. Uh, so he is absolutely hitting the ball to right field a lot. And, uh, but, you know, also tends to have the ability to pull the ball over the left field fence if you pitch him inside. And so, uh, I think a guy like this might be, uh, undervalued by, 
uh, just current numbers and, and looking at kind of like the spray chart and hard, medium, soft contact might allow us to, to better predict guys like Devin Travis and say, well, maybe we're missing something here. Yeah, well, I know that uh, I, I think just in discussions with Kylie McDaniel maybe or um, uh, other sort of folks, using opposite field power as a proxy for not only the power tool but also the hit tool um, yep. is is uh, has, appears to be somewhat reliable. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the theories that, again, I've never seen proven conclusively, but I think I buy into anyway, uh, even without the data to support it, it's still something I think I believe, is that if you can hit for opposite field power early in your career, you can probably hit for pull power later in your career, and you can kind of make that adjustment to where you used to hit the ball to all fields, and then as you get older and your bat slows, you can kind of lean more towards pull and extend your life, where if you're already, if you're majoring on pull power early in your career, mm. when your bat slows down, there's nowhere else to go. You've already, you're at the edge, essentially. Uh, and so I think there's some uh, uh, kind of evidence or some decent theory to suggest that you want younger players who hit the ball around the field rather than a guy who's just hooking absolutely everything down the right field line or the left field line if right. they're a right-handed hitter. Yeah, so Ben, essentially the, the, by that um, way of thinking, the, the key to longevity is sort of like it, the, the number of ways you can cheat after you're past your prime. Not not yeah. cheat not cheat cheat like but like the way, <laughs> well right <laughs> that's not that's not what I mean but the number of sort of ways like you're saying like now like you used to have uh you know powered all fields now you're just down the line but so you cheat a little bit down the line but that's just still a skill you have it's not you haven't uh, you haven't declined to nothing yeah I mean I think it basically gives you options right mm-hmm. like if you're early in your career you can hit the ball everywhere and then you can't do that anymore maybe there's another way you can become effective where mm-hmm. if the only way you could be effective was to try and you know, swing early and hook the ball down the 320 line, and then you lose the ability to do that, I mean, then you're just hitting foul balls. Like, I don't know what else you can do. Right. Well, we've seen that with pitchers, right? Like, uh, I think we talked maybe in recent weeks about Adam Wainwright. At one point, he was, like, you know, a first-round draft pick with, like, with real stuff and a live arm. He barely breaks 90 anymore, but it's because in the meantime, he w- he learned how to pitch as well. Yeah, uh, I think that we see this with pitchers all the time. It's kind of the evolution of, you know, Randy Johnson threw 100, and at the end of his career, he threw 88 or 92 or whatever. Like he, he lost like 10 miles an hour in his fastball, and he was still pretty good when he was 42, uh, pitching in the big leagues as a control guy after, you know, being the wild thing who couldn't throw strikes and threw 100 miles an hour at your head. Right. Uh, quickly, I want to ask you about the White Sox looming, uh, looming decision. Yeah, it's uh, coming. Yeah, and I'm wondering, do you think they're going to choose a backstrap loom or a warp-weighted loom? Maybe a flying, a flying, a sh- joke? A flying shuttle loom. Are we going with like a textile humor? Yeah, that's what it is. That's what we're <laughs> doing. This is a new low for Fangrass Audio, and we're <laughs> delving into textile humor. That's their big looming decision. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is why you do podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, what? They just haven't been very good. Uh, the they've problem. been really atrocious, yeah. and and maybe like secret, secretly atrocious because the Brewers got off to like such a slow start that everyone noticed and they fired their manager. But the Twin, uh, the White Sox have lost five in a row, uh, and they had the you know kind of blackout didn't happen games at Baltimore. So they actually haven't won a game in like over a week. Uh, but they lost over the weekend four games to the Twins, who are sorry Minnesota fans, not good. But this is a bad Twins team. And they got outscored, I think, 31 to 8, or 35 to 8. I Pelfrey pitched one of those games, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, just like the Twins blowing the doors off of you in a four-game series, 
is a pretty good sign yeah, that you have this, this is some underlying problems. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's yeah, that's <laughs> that's rough. The uh, now there are some who would say now because I, I uh, some people might have mentioned it via social media platform Twitter.com. I, did maybe you did you or did you not write a similar article about the Royals last year? I did, and they, I, and they proceeded and they, to make it to the World Series. They did. So this is, you know, I think that the, the, I guess that's why the headline is includes the looming uh, word. Yeah, is that I was trying to kind of give a, a hopefully realistic assessment of where the White Sox are and where they're probably headed, without saying that you know they need to trade Jeff Samarja tomorrow, right? Yeah. Like you don't. This isn't. Uh, the kind of situation where they just have to hit a panic button and trade Chris Sale and Jose Abreu and blow this whole thing up. But I, I do think that there's an interesting quandary for teams like this, and I think, you know, it's even possible the Padres will face a similar decision of these surprise contenders or teams that tried to be surprise contenders, uh, at some point when you have, you know, significant assets that are free agents at the end of the year, you can't wait too long, especially if your assets are gonna be overvalued or, or, overshadowed by someone else's free agent to be. Like, once Johnny Cueto hits the market, uh, whatever that's going to be, probably in July, uh, every other pitcher is going to look worse. Like, right. you, you have teams that are probably interested in Jeff Samarja now, or soon, in the next few weeks, that will strongly prefer Johnny Cueto when he's available. But you could maybe lure them into a trade before Cueto's on the market, saying, hey, look, you, you know, Cueto is better but you don't know you're going to get him. You don't even know if the Reds are going to trade him. You don't know what the bidding's going to be. Like, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding this one guy that everyone's going to want. You can have Jeff Samarja right now. You got him right now, uh, guys. That's basically what the Cubs did to the A's last year. And they said, you know, you can have Jeff Samarja at the beginning of July instead of the end of July, and all it's going to cost you is Addison Russell. And it uh, worked out pretty well for the Cubs. <laughs> for, for who? For the Cubs. For the Cubs, it did, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah it did, because... I, uh, I, I think this is probably a decent time to note, uh, since every time we mention Jeff Samarja, someone uh, criticizes us for not criticizing Billy Bean. Uh, at this moment, not that this is going to necessarily continue forever, the best 2015 player of all of these trades, Marcus Simeon, who's actually hitting pretty well for the A's and being useful, while Addison Russell looks somewhat overmatched and not ready for the big leagues, and Jeff Samarja pitches like a number five starter. Sorry, what was the name again? Marcus Simeon. Huh. Uh, you may have heard of him. <laughs> what, yeah, what can you tell me about this guy? <laughs> Uh, well, he can't play shortstop. He's not really probably, great shortstop. Yeah, they, they should probably move him back to second base. But he's yeah. gonna hit, apparently, yeah. uh, a little bit. Yeah. He's hit, he has hit, he's hit decently this season, showed some speed. Yeah. yeah. Nice little player. Not yeah. Addison Russell. Uh, they absolutely downgraded by going from Addison Russell to Marcus Semyon. But, right. not, not a complete and utter disaster. Yeah. Yeah. The defense might be a little rough. It's funny, uh, cause you watch him, he's like, he's fine, most of the time. <laughs> then sometimes he's not. And I guess that's the problem with being a major league shortstop is you have to be fine kind of all the time. Yeah, I, I yeah, right. I mean, I think there's uh, the potential for the him to be in a solid enough defensive second baseman. He's just being challenged at a position he shouldn't be challenged at. Probably. Right, right. Yeah, but uh, but he, but he's yeah he's uh, constantly creeping closer to his minor league numbers at this point. Yeah, I think the overall profile, he's drawing some walks and hitting for contact and making some, hitting for some power. Like, you know, he's doing the kinds of things that would make you a pretty solid major league middle infielder. Right. Uh, minus the defense part. Minus the defense part. <clears throat> right. And probably could play second or third. Yeah, so right. If he out. wasn't being asked to play shortstop, the defense would look fine. Right. Right. Um, oh yeah, uh, last question, I guess, uh, Houston Astros. They're uh, playing, yeah. very, playing very well. 
We are not going to be able to make any last rows jokes this year, I don't think. No, I don't think so. They, uh, Maybe we'll have to call them the first rows. You know, uh, I will occasionally, uh, and by occasionally I mean every day, publish a thing called the Nerd, nerd Game Scores. Yeah. And uh, it takes into account a number of things uh, on the team level. Uh, one of them is batting, but you know, the other one is uh, home runs and age. But the thing you learn about the Astros is that um, this is not including their pitchers, but with regard to their hitters, uh, they have one of the youngest teams, but they are also producing above-average offensive numbers. I think they're one of the top home run hitting teams. They actually produced like a 30-30 season. They had already a couple days ago. Yeah, uh, like I think a, a collective 30-30 team. I think you know one of the f- fun tools that Bill James invented back in the 80s or 90s or something was a thing called RC27, which was uh, runs created per 27 outs, which basically purported to answer the question of like if you fielded a lineup full of you know this particular player, yeah. all of them the clone of this player, how many runs per game would they score? And I love that the 2015 Houston Astros answer that question for Rob Deere. Like, if you had a lineup full of, like, nine Rob Deers, it would look like this. Like a 35% strikeout. Oh, yeah. George Springer and Evan Gaddis. And, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, these guys are, like, uh, all cut from this very three true outcome cloth. And then they have Jose Altuve, who's the polar opposite of that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, like, mostly uh, a lineup full of, you know, Colby Rasmus and guys who just swing and miss all the time. Jason Castro. Uh, but they occasionally get into one, and they'll hit a ball really far. And Chris Carter's, and you know, they have a lot of these guys. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it, it actually does work, uh, especially when you're hitting home runs. When you're not hitting home runs, like they weren't early in the season, you look atrocious. And uh, you know, prognosticators and and media types start speculating that you know you can't strike out this often and have a productive offense. You need to hit for more contact, uh, which you know. It helps to make contact, but if you hit a lot of home runs, you know, this works too. Yeah, have you seen? Uh, <laughs> it'll be fun to follow. But uh, Bill James also wrote some, you know, said that the numbers are not merely just sort of cold, um, you know, uh, lifeless things. That they they you can tell a story with them pretty easily, and you could tell a story with Evan Gaddis's numbers very quickly. Because uh, he's had, let's see, he's he has a less than a four percent walk rate. He has nearly a thirty percent strikeout rate, but he also has, um, he has over like a two hundred isolated power. He's like a two fifty isolated power figure, yeah, and a two hundred BABIP. So yeah. you could kind of put together Evan Gaddis. He's essentially just a lumberjack who's accidentally playing baseball. Is the thing. Yeah, he, he thinks he has an axe, but it's actually a bat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think when I looked this morning, and they, this could be off by a day or two or something, but he was hitting like 190, 230, 500 or something, That's which really is like, yeah. yeah. Uh, you don't generally see like the 230 on base percentage and the 500 slugging percentage going together. Yeah, he's, he's interesting. I mean, there are players who, even if they're not great, uh, certainly compelling because he – but he came back to baseball late after having been like a janitor, bartender, yeah. or whatever, and then, yeah. and then he was he was like a 25 year old in high A ball at some point, wasn't he? Yeah, he was uh, tearing up the minor leagues, but he was old. So prospect guys didn't like him because he was old for the level. And it's like, well, how much does that matter if you didn't actually spend like the last five years playing? Like right, that yeah. is kind of the Josh Hamilton quandary of like if you just take half of a decade away from the sport. I don't know that your age relative to your level has that much bearing anymore. I think you what you I think what you're actually bringing up is the Blaine Weller quandary. Uh, that is what it's called. You don't know who Blaine Weller is. Uh, I don't. No, he's should no. I, should I? He is a he's a 25 year old currently pitching for High A Arizona's High A team. 
mm-hmm. but he was pulled out of independent ball and he he touches like 100 miles per hour. He's but, not the art he's not the art school kid. Okay. Uh, I mean in throwing 100 I'm not sure your age does matter anymore. I've yeah. seen uh not rookie of the year but uh Yeah. Oh, is that the is that the movie from a few years ago with the Jim Morris? Oh no, no no, that was yeah. Uh that's the rookie Dennis Quaid. Or, yeah, right. Whatever that was. What was that movie called? The the rookie. Yeah, the, the rookie. rookie I right. think, yeah. Yeah. Right. So if you throw 100 and you're 37, that's fine. That'll work. As long as you throw 100. Is that what helps. he got up to? I think he was in like a high 90s. He was like 97 to 99 for a little while. And then yeah. his elbow was like, this hurts. Right. But he had just hadn't he just been coaching like a like again like a legion team? Yeah. Maybe he'll become the, the next next coach of the Brewers seeing as he has more <laughs> experience than Craig Council. Possibly. And probably just Dennis Quaid also has more experience <laughs> at this point. Like Craig Council. He, he played a former Legion, <laughs> right. Legion I, coach. I, I think managed a bunch of actors. So therefore, I'm ahead of Craig Council on the experience scale. Yeah. Um, all right. We're done. You're done. Okay. Cameron, you've, uh, what is it? What did we say? You fulfilled my expectations. You fulfilled your obligations. Obligations. obligations oh, man. I only got two of the three words right. Yeah, that's all right. It's close enough. Uh, all right. Well, what would you rather see for tomorrow? Would you rather see what fired managers go on to do, or would you rather see the most improved players according to the projections? Uh, fired managers. Fired managers. All right. I'll do a little research on fired managers. Okay. I, I uh, will have it for 2 p.m. exactly, Dave Cameron. Sounds like a plan. All right. That has been uh, Dave Cameron. So I should say thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. So I should say. Uh, that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Stooley. It's been Fangraphs Audio.